Hi, this is Justin. Today on Theocast, we are going to answer a question that we get all the time, not just here with respect to the podcast and the ministry of Theocast, but even in our own local churches. We talk about Reformed theology. We talk about being Reformed. So people will rightly ask us, brothers, what do you mean by that? What does the word Reformed mean? So in today's episode, John and I will be answering that question. We hope that it's helpful to you. Stay tuned. Hey guys, as a quick reminder, if you'd like to join Theocast and helping other people find rest in Christ, a simple way of doing that is simply by leaving us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. You can also leave reviews on all of our books. They're available at Amazon.com. And if you haven't started following us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook yet, that's a great way to take our content and then share it with your friends and family. To learn more about how to support Theocast, simply visit theocast.org slash give. Welcome to Theocast, encouraging weary pilgrims to rest in Christ. Conversations about the Christian life from a Reformed perspective. Our hosts today are John Moffat, pastor of Grace Reformed Church in Spring Hill, Tennessee, and myself, Justin Perdue, pastor of Covenant Baptist Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We've got a good episode in store for you today. So I'm going to throw it over to my brother, John Moffat. He's going to give us a brief observation on food and cuisine, because that matters to us too. And then we're going to get to the real stuff of the conversation for today. Yep. I like dried fruit. I like fruit that's kind of packaged away that you can grab some real quick, throw it in. Last night, I was a little hungry right before I went to bed. I didn't want to eat anything, you know, heavy. So I I walked into the closet and there was a bag of pitted prunes, right? And uh, no dates, pitted, pr- not pr- prunes, say, pitted dates. Complete dates, pump yeah. fake because you said dates to me before we were <laughs> I know. And uh, I pulled one out and I'm looking at it. And I'm like, this is the same size and color as a cockroach. Let's just be real. And I put it into my mouth. And after I thought that, I couldn't, I ate one. I was like, that's it. I can't eat anymore because now I feel like I'm eating a cockroach. There you go. For those of you who like dates, I may have just ruined it for you. Hopefully, hopefully everybody is edified and built up by what John has <laughs> shared with us. We're grateful, brother. Yeah. Yeah. Let's. Well, on another let's note, maybe, a couple yeah, other on things. A, on a slightly <laughs> better note. Here we go. Uh, just some updates from, from Theocast, uh, be looking for a new series on covenant theology and introduction to covenant theology. Uh, my, from my understanding, it should be out by now. So you can go and, and download that and listen to it. We, we tried our best to get that in, uh, as small of content as possible. We really would, we really did want it to be an introduction. I think it's three hours total. It's five sessions. There's including notes and all of that. So go to the website and look for that. A big deal in my life lately, uh, we started our church about three and a half, I guess three years ago, uh, and we um, we are we helped plant Jimmy Bueller that's in uh, Minnesota last November, and this last weekend, two weekends ago, we had another man who is graduate from Westminster Theological Seminary in San Diego, who's been associate pastor there. He just moved out here to help work with me for the next year. And then next year That's in the exciting. summer of 2021, he's going to be planning a church with us. Yeah, just south of us. So we meet this morning, right after this, I get to go and meet with him about starting to create that schedule and plan. And so it's a big deal. We're excited to see another Reformed church be planted. 
where the gospel will be uh, proclaimed. So it's, it's encouraging to see what God's doing there. So just, you know, I will tell you this right now. I met Patrick through Theocast. So those yeah. of you who support this and spread this ministry, uh, we are planning another church because of the your ministry. So there you go. Yeah, absolutely. So you said just now that another Reformed church will be planted, Lord willing, in the mm-hmm. years to come. That's right. So That's right. I know you and I are unashamed about this, and I know Jimmy agrees with us. We we do Theocast because we think it is valuable and good and needed. And at the same time, we are unapologetic about the fact that we are pastors of our own local churches right. first. And yeah. so as you and I were talking before we recorded this morning, the content that we're about to record today, we hope and trust will be helpful to a lot of people. And mm-hmm. we absolutely think that it will be helpful to people who attend our churches and to people who right. show up, especially maybe for the first time. And we're having conversations with them about Covenant Baptist Church or about Grace Reformed Church. And they'll they'll ask us, they'll hear the word reformed. It's in the name of your church, John. They hear that word potentially, you know, in in the context of our church here in North Carolina. And many people will ask, what what do you mean? Like, what do you mean when you say reform? Some people well, you have, have covenant, ideas about it. You have covenant it. in your name, no, which is right. another, yeah. Yeah, it's right. It's a pointer to, to a piece of this conversation that we're going to have. So mm-hmm. people have a lot of questions. What do you mean when you say that word? And so... Thereby, we're going to have a conversation today about what we mean when we say reformed. And so because we like to be clever and people love us for our cleverness, we have entitled this episode today. Do they really? I'm being completely sarcastic, (laughs) completely sarcastic right now. Um, We have entitled this episode, The Five Points of Reformed Theology. And by that, Mm. we don't mean definitively that Theocast is now, you know, laying down the gauntlet for what. You know, the litmus right. test of Reformed theology, Theocast is now putting that forward. But no, these are just five tenets, five major pieces of Reformed theology That's from right. our perspective. Yeah, when I get this question, and I, we do a lot, a lot of uh, new people who come to our church, or when when our church members are sharing, hey, I go to Grace Reform, what's the first question they ask? Well, in our area, the Reformed theology is is not popular. A lot of people don't know what it is. It's kind of why we decided to put it in the name of the church. I give them these these five points. So again, to Justin's point, these could be altered uh, a little bit. You could add some or maybe um, adjust a little bit, but we would say, historically speaking, if you were to look at the history of the word and the concept of reformed and a reformed church, uh, these is what these five would be, I think at least what would be uh, in, in all context of a reformed church. So we'll start with the first one. And uh, we'll go through there. So the first one that Justin and I would agree on is that um, reformed, the word reformed or reformed church is going to be, I know this might be a, a big word for people, it's a controversial word, but Calvinistic. They would hold to what we would say sure. the five points of Calvinism. So Justin, if for someone who has no idea, if they were just curious about reformed theology, give us uh, a helpful definition of Calvinism. Yeah, so I'm not going to give the five points of Calvinism. Just as a brief no. uh, a brief plug here, we did five episodes, one on each of the five points a while back. John, I think you may even make those available to anybody. Yes. 
uh, for a donation of any amount. So we would refer you yep. to those if you want more detailed unpacking of each of the five points and even what those are. The, the most right. simple way to define Calvinistic theology, I think, even historically and from our perspective here at Theocast, is that God is, God is sovereign and purposeful in all things, and He certainly is in redemption. And so when it comes to the salvation of sinners, there is one worker, there is one person, one being who does that who accomplishes salvation, and that is God himself. So in other words, salvation belongs to the Lord. God saves sinners is what Calvinistic theology would teach. To use a a word that is maybe slightly more technical and theological, but it's good for us to know, we believe as Calvinists that salvation is monergistic, mono meaning one, and then the word ergo meaning work. So there is one worker. So God does this. It is We contribute nothing to our salvation. All we bring is our sin. And God right. does everything necessary to save sinners. He, he actually grabs us and pulls us from the realm of death into life. Right? He, he gives us his spirit. He counts us with the righteousness of Christ. He provides us with everything that we need. And we are redeemed through his work, not our work. And That's right. That, I mean, John, please feel free to, to riff on yeah. that. Uh, no, I would, uh, I would yeah. say... I would say because of that, over we have that perspective of Scripture, that we believe that the Bible clearly teaches that man is dead in their sin, that there is nothing they can do to bring themselves to life. This is why the Spirit must come through the preaching of the gospel and bring them to life, that it will affect the way, and it has throughout all of history, those who would understand a Reformed perspective, it affects the way that we preach, that we teach, and that we do church. Uh, because we don't believe we can we can change the minds of men that salvation is not a will issue that it, all I need to do is convince somebody of the gospel then I'm sorry convince someone to to uh, believe Jesus and follow him then I would say uh, this changes the way in which so when we preach we trust in the power of the gospel not convincing Amen. them to change their minds we believe that God has right. to do that through the spirit so reform theology when it comes to Calvinism it's not just well we just think that there's the, there's these five points it actually yeah. shapes and molds the way we preach and the way sure. we teach and the way that we administer the gospel and evangelism right and I, last thing I'll say on this perhaps is, we believe, as I said earlier, that God saves sinners. We do not believe that we save ourselves with God's help. And that has a lot of implications that you already mentioned some of them. Part of this, too, for me over the last number of years, John, is that you know even the five points of Calvinism and some of the things that that, that, that entails, I, I don't feel like I need to get up and defend that. I, I am just, mm-hmm. when I preach the gospel, Calvinism, as it is so-called, is really just part and parcel of the good news <laughs> that right. we were, you know, basically of what Christ has accomplished and that he has done it and that there is nothing left for sinners to do. And frankly, there's nothing that we ever could do. And so yeah. that that's what we're talking about here when we when we refer uh, to to Calvinistic theology. Yes, there's a famous quote by Spurgeon, and I think what he was yeah. trying to do was pull pull yeah. the title out of Calvinism and, and he literally yeah. says Calvinism is the gospel. He says, uh, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, because what he, what, what his point was often we want, you know, often people say, well, I don't believe in a man. I just want to believe in the Bible. 
And all right. we're saying is that historically speaking, this is what the Bible says. Yeah. And if you understand the context of where it comes from, it's just the explanation or the, the we is, were arguing over, is it man or is it God? And Calvin right. got in the middle of that argument. Right. It's, it's pure, unadjusted gospel you know, is what we would say. And Spurgeon's quote is, yeah, I don't believe that we are preaching the gospel unless we are preaching what is nowadays called Calvinism. Calvinism. Yeah. 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 So there's the first piece of of how we understand Reformed theology. It is Calvinistic theology. But let's move on to a second major tenet or a second major piece of Reformed theology, and that is covenantal theology. So we recently did a series, a five-part series that you alluded to, uh, an intro to covenant theology in which I think I made the statement and I stand by this, that reform theology is covenant theology. That's so right. these two things are, are inextricably linked. And even before we recorded this session, you and I were debating whether we would do covenantal theology or Calvinism first, because that's how primary we understand this covenantal right. perspective to be. And so just a brief word on the history of this before we maybe consider the, the theology itself. It, as the Reformation happened in the 16th century, in the aftermath of that, the people who came out of the Reformation in the Reformed tradition all understood themselves to be covenantal. And that was true whether you were a, a Presbyterian uh, in terms of your, your polity and, and the like and how you administered baptism. And it also was true mm-hmm. of independents and true of particular Baptists. And so broadly speaking, in the 17th century, all of those groups of people understood themselves to be covenantal. And so that is our heritage as Protestants here in America. And certainly for us, John, as we adhere to the 1689 London Baptist Confession, that is true for us. When we say covenant theology, I'll just kick us off here, brother, broadly speaking. We don't just mean that there are covenants in the Bible. We don't just mean (laughs) that God works through covenants, because I think Christians everywhere uh, agree with that statement. We are talking about a framework through which we understand and interpret Scripture. And why don't you give us a, a maybe an overview, high level, yep. and then maybe we'll unpack mm-hmm. some of the pieces underneath that. Historically speaking, there have been developed systems, is another way of saying this, or I would say lenses or structures that we read the Bible from. Some of you may have heard of what's called a dispensational understanding of Scripture, and then counteract to that what we would say is covenantal. So to, to, to Justin's point, we believe that the all of Scripture is the unfolding revelation. It's the, the story that's getting progressively more revealed as each page goes through. And what is it revealing? It's revealing the redemption of sinners. It's, it's, it is fixing what Adam and Eve destroyed. And so we would say that covenantalism is a redemptive historic understanding of Scripture, where all of Scripture is the unfolding story of redemption. A good example of this is if you were to go to Ephesians chapter 1, there is given to us from Paul, uh, as I love how Jimmy used the illustration in our Covenant Theology series, where there's this, you know, quick introduction before the movie begins in any of these Avenger stories. Yeah. Yeah, it's the montage. And so before you read Genesis chapter 1, you need to know that there's this conversation that happened between the Father, the Son, and Spirit, where there was a promise made. And these promises were made between the Father and the Son that the Father would deem 
he would redeem for himself a chosen people, that he would save them from their sins, and the son would come, and the son committed to the father to obey the will, which is to be the replacement, the sacrifice and righteousness needed. And historically speaking, we have been, this is what the reformers would say is what we call the covenant of redemption. It's a promise that was made to redeem sinners, right? So from that, you have to ask, well, how is it going to happen? How is he going to redeem sinners? Well, now you can go to Genesis chapter three and begin to read. And what you learn is uh, they call what's called bicovenantalism or two covenants. You learn about the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. And the whole structure of the Bible is the flow, the outflow of this one covenant. So you have the covenant of redemption. It's now going to be accomplished right through the Mm -hmm. covenant of works and the covenant of grace. So Justin, that's kind of the overarching. Why don't you give us a more fuller explanation of bicovenantalism? Yes. So I agree with you. And I just want to restate something that you just said. It's important Mm -hmm. for our understanding that the covenant of redemption that was made amongst the Godhead before the world began is what is accomplished in time and space via the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. And so all of history is an unfolding of the covenant of redemption in that respect. So the, Mm -hmm. the covenant of works is the covenant that God makes with Adam in the Garden of Eden. We would read about that in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, where there are positive things, commands that that God gives to Adam as to what he is to do with his life, and there is a prohibition made. I mean, so that is that he is not to eat the fruit of a particular tree, and there are sanctions placed upon him if he violates that covenant. The tree of life is there in the garden, and the tree of life shows up again at the end of the story in the book of Revelation. And so that we understand is representative of the eternal life that Adam would have achieved and would have accomplished for his posterity and along with himself had he kept the covenant. But to use the language of the prophet Hosea, he transgressed the covenant. To use the language Mm. of Paul, Adam fell, right? He did not accomplish what God laid out for him. He violated the prohibition. And so the sanctions were rolling forth upon him you know, from that point forward, death came and sin entered the world and corruption and the like. So then the question is, okay, this covenant of works, this conditional covenant that God made with Adam has been broken and things don't look so good at this point. How then will the covenant of redemption be accomplished? And that is through, as we've already said, the covenant of grace that God promises initially in Genesis 3.15, when he says to Adam and Eve from the, the woman, a seed will come who will crush the head of the serpent, who is the devil, right? And then what happens from that point forward, we see the the promise of the covenant of grace revealed further and further and further through Abraham and Moses and David. And then we see the covenant of grace itself established through Jesus in the new covenant. And in the covenant of grace, unlike the covenant of works, the covenant of grace is an unconditional covenant where we do nothing. We receive what Christ has done and are counted righteous in him. Our sin is atoned for and removed from us, and we are reconciled to God, and we are redeemed by grace through faith in Christ alone. And so that's that that bicovenantal framework of works and grace. And this is is absolutely essential to Reformed theology. Yeah, go, brother. Right. And let me interject here. The word grace is important to understand because grace means to receive unmerited favor. That means you are receiving gifts that you do not deserve or earn. So when we say covenant of grace, God made a promise to give to his chosen people 
salvation and righteousness. So he would cleanse them and then he would make them holy and through glorification, through this resurrected body. So when we say God, he promised that, he promised it to Eve, clarified it to Abraham. It's further seen through types and shadows, meaning that a, a, a type is something that is pointing you to something that is farther. Of course, we know what a shadow is, right? The shadow is not the actual substance, but it is a reflection of the substance. So the Mosaic law becomes this constant shadow. Uh, We use this illustration in the Covenant Theology series. When you were brought a menu, this happened to me last night, and on there are pictures of burritos and taquitos and enchiladas. Those are not the actual substance. Those are a type of the substance. And then they take that menu away because I don't need it anymore. Why? Because they're bringing out the actual antitype. They're bringing out the actual substance. So the Old Testament is this unfolding story of God giving us more and more and more types so we can anticipate and with great confidence and clarity when the when Messiah shows up we can point to him and say yes that is the type we have been looking for that's the anti that's the actual substance that was promised to Eve and Abraham and Moses and David and the prophets they all pointed us to the so right. when we read scripture we read it with that lens of the unfolding promise of the covenant grace that's coming to us. And how did we get the covenant of grace? We got it through the covenant of works. Or we would say, as the Old Testament, or as the New Testament says, the old covenant. Yeah, I, and a couple of things. Maybe one, I wanted to maybe give one other illustration of, of what you're pointing to, mm-hmm. you know, the, the types and shadows and stuff. Because this is, I think, helpful for people to understand what we're saying. So a lot of times people read the Mosaic Law and they'll read about the the sacrificial system and the intricacies of these things and clean and unclean and all this stuff. And what does this what does this mean ultimately? What's this about? You know, so if we think about the sacrificial system, it was given initially so that people, when they became unclean, could be made ceremonially clean again. But it, in in that sense, it purified their flesh to use the language of the writer to the Hebrews. But like the writer to the Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats that were sacrificed could never take away sins. That's Hebrews 10, 4. So then what was the sacrificial system ultimately about? It was about the one who would come to be the perfect sacrifice in the place of his people who actually would take away their sins. And this is the language, not just of the New Testament, but the Old Testament. You know, when God right. will say in Isaiah 43 that I will, I, I am he who will blot out your transgressions for my own sake and I'll remember your sins no more. Or Psalm 103, that our sins are removed from us as far as the East is from the West, right? And God will no longer deal with us on the basis of our iniquity. That's what would happen through Christ. And that's what all of scripture is pointing us to. And so we understand everything in the Bible in light of its main point which is God's plan of redemption accomplished through Jesus and then applied to us certainly by the work of the Holy Spirit. And right. what, last comment on covenant theology, at least I think it is. I say that, and, it, and I might not be saying the, tr- the truth. I have something. We may say more. <laughs> Great. So, but but the, the covenant of works and covenant of grace piece, this statement is true. We are saved by works, just not our own. And what That's we right. mean by that is that Jesus accomplishes a covenant of works he fulfills a covenant of works in the covenant of grace in order to accomplish the covenant of redemption. And so right. we, are, we are justified, we are declared righteous, right? We have standing before God on the basis of Christ's works, 
So it's not as though God doesn't require works. It's not as though God doesn't require righteousness. It's just that Jesus has done that for us. And a covenantal framework helps us understand exactly how that's the case, that everything required was fulfilled and then counted to us Mm -hmm. in the covenant of grace by faith. We're excited to announce that we have a new free ebook available at our website called Faith Versus Faithfulness, a primer on rest. And we, the host, put this together to explain the difference between emphasizing one's faith in Christ versus emphasizing one's faithfulness to Christ, and how one leads to rest and how the other often to a lack of assurance. And you can get this at theocast.org slash primer. And if you've been encouraged by what you've been hearing at Theocast, we'd ask you to help partner with us. You can do that by joining our Total Access membership. That's our monthly membership that gives you access to all of our material that we've produced over the last four years, or simply by donating to our ministry. And you can do that by going to our website, theocast.org. We hope that you enjoy the rest of the conversation. Yeah, we would say here at Theocast, and, and according to the you know, uh, 1689, that the promises of the covenant of grace are given to us in uh, Eve and Abraham, and then and then you see it in, Mo- in Moses and David, and then the prophets. But the actual establishment of it is in the new covenant, and this is where you hear Paul referencing that we are part of this new covenant, where uh, we are regenerate. The Spirit lives within us. We now have union with Christ. Um, now, there's just to throw a hat out there. There are a slight differences between covenant theology, but I would say everything up to this point, uh, our Pado Baptist slash Presbyterian brothers would agree with us. There's a covenant of redemption. There's bicovenantalism because of work covenant of grace. When it comes down to the final application of some of those, there is historically been some differences. Um, we'll leave that for another time, another podcast. But sure. I would say that's structure of understanding the Bible, which is the most important thing to understand, understanding the Bible from a covenantal perspective, the unfolding story of God saving sinners through the story of redemption, that is what defines it as something that's very different than than what's out there historically speaking in uh, in the world. There's a lot of other systems out there, some of them more popular than others, but we would say when we say Reformed, we believe when you approach Scripture, Scripture leads you to this. It's just pulled straight out of the text. Right. We believe in a historic understanding of Scripture. You look at the grammar, and from that, we see that there is this flow of covenant. So we're not putting it upon the text. We are arguing it's coming from the text. It, it flows out of it. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. So if if number one was Calvinistic theology in terms of the our five points of Reformed theology, one is Calvinism. The second is covenant theology. The third, we would contend, is is a confessional perspective, confessional theology. And so, John, why don't you kick us off with some thoughts on what it means to be confessional? Mm-hmm. Well, sometimes when people hear this, they think, "Oh, the you have the there's an authority that's greater than the Bible." So you aren't a sola, you're not sola scriptura. You you aren't believing in the Bible of loan. That you have to have another document that governs you. And we want to clarify that. I know I held that position when I was very young in Bible college. You know, I was no creed but Christ. I think I even used that phrase. You know, all confessions are are just smaller, smaller Catholic documents that just, you know, they're not they're not needed anymore. And and, and so we tossed them all aside. And what we did when you toss all of the historic faith that has gone before aside, you don't realize 
uh, the pool that you're swimming in, and often people step off into the deep end and end up drowning in heresy. So confessions are all come out of heresy, actually, that they're, they're fighting back against the wrong uh, uh, unbiblical doctrines that have, have come up throughout the ages. And the confessions are designed to help give what we would say a unified answer to the historic understanding of Christian doctrine. Now, there, I would say, is primary, most important. You cannot deny. If you do deny, you're not a Christian. You're not evangelical. Right. And then there are secondary and we would say third level or tertiary is a word that's used there, where uh, you're going to have the different confessions uh, dis- disagree a little bit here. But this is where I would pull in our Lutheran brothers that they are confessional. They f- they fit sure. into this uh, very historically. Uh, they they also fought a lot of the battles that we we as the Reformed had fought defining uh, the nature of the gospel, defining the nature of justification and sanctification, man, we stand uh, arm in arm with them. So that would be the quick definition as far as historically. Um, And then there are different, we would say, prominent confessions today. Justin, I'll let you you jump in there and kind of talk about what those are and how they apply to our context today. Yeah, man. Um, You made some good points there. Even the fact that heresy is what usually gives rise to confessions because theology and doctrine need to be clarified in terms of what is orthodox versus what is heterodox, what's false doctrine. So a lot of times, I think a misconception about confessional theology, people assume that all we mean by that is that we are adhering to a historic, an historic confession of faith. And certainly it does mean that, but it is more than just simply using a confession, you know, in, in our churches. It is a, a perspective and a posture where we understand that at the heart of the Christian life is, is truth and a set of doctrines and truth claims that are to be trusted and rested in. And all of those doctrines and truth claims that need to be trusted and rested in center on Jesus Christ. They center on his person and his work, what he has accomplished in our place, the nature of redemption, the nature of salvation. And it is a, it's a very objective perspective where we are objective, meaning it stands unaffected outside of us. We are looking always outside of ourselves to save what's wrong in us versus looking inward and hoping to find our you know, the ground of our uh, assurance and our peace there, we are looking outside of ourselves. We're not looking inward to transformation and things like that primarily. And it is also a perspective that is grounded in something that is finished. So in that That's sense, right. we'll use the word declarative uh, a lot of times. It's, it's something to be declared. It's, it's over. Like salvation is done. It's so done that Jesus is sitting down in heaven and he's going to come back for us. And so we are not concerned primarily with what we need to be doing in order to be redeemed. We are concerned with what do we need to be trusting in and receiving that Christ has done that has accomplished our redemption. And so it's a fundamentally different orientation, and it's a different focus and a different posture that would Mm -hmm. describe confessional theology versus what is more the norm. I think we would say the the norm in in the evangelicalism, certainly in in Mm -hmm. the the church in the West is is a more pietistic perspective. It, pietism is something we talk about a lot here, where the focus is on you, and you're looking inside, and you're concerned primarily with your life, your disciplines, your performance. Uh, and Christ, of course, is there, and he's assumed, but uh, he is not oftentimes the foreground emphasis focus, and that's something that confessionalism does as well. When a Christian first 
comes to life. And if, if they didn't grow up in the church, they don't have any biblical knowledge. Uh, the Bible is, is, is full of wonder and it's full of glory and it's full of confusion to those who have no idea how to read it. And you can start reading it. And before you know, they're going to Siri to say, uh, Hey Siri, why does God hate everybody in the old Testament? And what's with shaving the corner of their beards? And, uh, what's with all of the dead animals? This, this book, is, uh, that's what ends up happening within the second chapter, the second book there, Deuteronomy is what happened here. And, uh, or sorry, third book. So what, what the confessions do for the new believer is that it hands them in a historic document that has been verified yeah, from scripture. You, you, these aren't documents that are above scripture. They are the explanation of scripture and they have been, uh, I would say, clarified and affirmed for hundreds of years now that this is what we collectively say and agree that the Word of God teaches. And the way I use it, even in my own church, is I tell people, take this home, because if you have questions about who is God, how does he save, what is sanctification, what is the church, what is baptism, what is the Lord's table, Uh, what is church discipline, how do we understand church membership, all of these are going to be given in simple paragraph explanations with verses underneath them to help you understand collectively how it is that we should know who God is and then how we should live with one another and how we should govern our lives in that way. Otherwise, you're left up to all kinds of interpretation of God's of God's word. So the confessions right. of what I would say help give us bumpers to keep us moving in the right direction through God's word that we don't end up being, you know... <laughs> Heretics, and that's in other words, right? Con- confessional or trapped theology. in sin. Yeah, confessional theology in that sense, John, is just Jude three. You know, it's it's a passing down of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And that's right. And you're exactly right. The confessions provide for us. Uh, they kind of chalk the field theologically. They're, they're guardrails, like you said, to keep us from from heading into the ditches. And I think they are also a great lesson for us in understanding that theology is best done corporately, not individually. And this is something that is prevalent in our day where people are not as confessional, but then what they end up doing is they end up following the doctrine or theology of one man or the doctrine or theology of one church. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a follower of this person, or I like this guy's theology, or this guy wrote that book, and it you know, it is basically the the framework through which I understand things now. That's that's a lot more precarious and dangerous than it is to look back to, like you said, documents that were produced by oftentimes large groups of people that have Councils, stood the test yeah. of time. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, just a maybe last comment before we transition to to our next piece. When we say confessional, underneath that, th- that maybe is even more. Uh, foundational historically would be, uh, you know, creedal. We are creedal Christians as well, meaning that we adhere to the ancient creeds of the church, which the, the three ancient creeds that that we would adhere to most notably are the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. And that's where we have overlap with any, you know, Orthodox Christian throughout history would have affirmed right. those creeds. And then we have specific confessions that might distinguish us from you know, our Presbyterian brothers or our Lutheran brothers or our Anglican brothers and sisters, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's useful stuff. It keeps us safe and, uh, you know, guards us from, from error, brother. 
So mm-hmm. we've gone through the first three. The three C's have been covered. Calvinistic theology, covenantal theology, confessional theology are all a piece of what it means to be reformed. What would we say next, John, if we were trying to explain well, to somebody who's new to this? Yeah, and I would say since we've hit this point on confessionalism, all four other points uh, are seen in our confession. So much of what Very we true. have pulled out. Yeah, so I would say the confession really does help provide for us a Calvinistic covenantal. And now I'm going to say the next two, which are law gospel distinction and ordinary means. So all of these, you will see throughout scripture, the confession points these out for you, that God is sovereign in salvation, that he accomplishes this through covenantalism and, or through covenants. And there is a distinct understanding between the law and the gospel. And then the way in which the church interacts with that is what we call through ordinary means. So we we get this from our confessions, uh, specifically the Reformed Confession, which, which, you know, Belgic Westminster 1689 would be the ones that we would would see those in. Savoy Declaration would fit there too, but yeah. Savoy, exactly. Savoy Declaration as well. So law-gospel distinction is, I think, one of the most important parts of understanding the Bible because there is more confusion that happens when it comes down to the law and the gospel. And a lot of uh, pietism and a lot of people who are in bondage to legalism happens when we don't fully understand how the Bible has been structured as a message of law and a message of gospel. So Justin, Mm -hmm. give us a a quick definition of both of those, so then we can explain where possibly those are mixed uh, in Scripture, and then we'll talk about the three uses of the law after that. Sounds good, man. When we say law, we are talking about anything in Scripture that we are told to do, any command that is given. In particular, when we are told to do something for a, a reward, do this and you will live. That's law. So in a simple way, do is law. But then when we are told in Scripture to make the distinction, about things that have been done for us by Jesus. That's gospel. So when it comes to law, we do things for a reward. When it comes to gospel, we receive what has been done for us by faith. So that distinction is critical, as you've already alluded to, for a number of reasons. And so, yeah, the the law says do this and live. The gospel says Jesus has done it. Now live in him. And right. so that's a, and a I would add to that. To, yeah. Go ahead. Right. And I would add to that when it's law, it's not best effort. It's not above the rest. It's no, not. It's perfect. Right. More, more good. It, right. The law demands absolute perfection from the beginning yeah. to the end without failure ever. So it's not Wait. eventually you get there. It has to right. be from day one. Right. Well, and e- we see this in a couple of ways pointedly in the Bible. I mean, first of all, that covenant of works that God made with Adam, we saw that one transgression wrecked it. It was over. That's right. But then think about Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when he says that to his audience that their righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes who were Mm -hmm. phenomenal at keeping the law, at least outwardly. He applies the law to the hearts of the people, right, by especially illustrating that with adultery and, and murder and what the command says. But I tell you that in your heart, if you're not keeping this, then you've broken the law. And then he says toward the end of Matthew chapter five, that you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And so you're exactly right. The law does not grade on a curve. It is all or nothing. You will keep it perfectly or you will face judgment. And 
Yeah. Right. I mean, that's, that's critical for, right. for our understanding of, of what the law requires and, and what the right. law is in scripture over and against what the gospel provides. Right. And I would say yeah. to the gospel, we have to clarify the gospel. Gospel's good news. And the good news is that this goes back to our understanding of how God saves. The gospel is the good news that God saves sinners by his sovereign will and decree and by his power, that he comes in and he changes their heart. He brings them from death to life. What's the promise of the new covenant? The promise of the new covenant is that God will come in and rip out their heart of stone and God will put in a heart of flesh and then God will put the law on their hearts and he will cause them to walk in it. The good news is that God saves sinners and then he calls them to come to him. The good news is that you can be saved by God. And the the good the, the only requirement that is put upon the sinner, there's one requirement, and that requirement is to believe, right? Word. And some would even say, well, no, John, repentance is a requirement. Go ahead, Justin. No, I was just going to say that. You hear the language yeah. these days of the demands of the gospel and right. what the gospel requires of us. And we do. We want to scream from the rooftops. Like, there's one believe, trust. <laughs> That's right. That's receive. Right. Yeah. So when we were gonna hear say gospel, repentance. We, yeah. Right. So when we hear gospel, we need to hear God is saving sinners. There's, there's, you can't save yourself because what the, what Paul says is that the law becomes a mirror for us. It's for us to look into and see our sin and see where we have failed God right. and see where we need a savior. Right. Exactly. So the law can never save Law has never saved anyone, nor was it ever designed to save anyone, because you were born in Adam, a sinner. The law cannot redeem you. The law was designed to show you how much you need Jesus. So the gospel then is proclaimed to you. When you hear the gospel, the Bible says the Spirit does his work. He transforms your heart. You then believe. You then repent. Then you then become the follower of, of Jesus Christ, where he now is your slave. I'm sorry, you're his slave and he is your master, which is a great news, which means sin can own you no more. Nothing can own you no more because you are owned by the gracious, kind, loving savior who is now your master. So that's the good news of the gospel. Now, when we talk about a law gospel distinction, Justin, maybe we need to give an illustration of where those get mixed and how we have to keep them apart. Sure. Uh, maybe a brief thought on repentance really quickly, John. I mean, the, the biblical sure. word yep. for that, because you, you mentioned it earlier. I just want to clarify the biblical yep. word metanoia is it literally means a change of mind. And to be very clear, repentance is something that God does for us. He does to us. He repents us. We don't repent ourselves. But the change of mind, well, what's it about? It's about God and about ourselves and what God requires and where we stand before him and what we need. And the law is a big piece of how God repents us because, as we're going to talk about in a minute, God crushes us with the law and what it requires. We are ruined by that. And then we are driven to Christ in repentance and faith. I would contend that biblically speaking, repentance and faith, are they go together. You, You can't separate the two because it is all a piece of what God is doing in us. He repents us and grants us faith. So, That's all right, right. law-gospel distinction. You, you said, where, you know, maybe give an example of how these things are collapsed uh, or confused. There are many things that we could go. I, I'm happy to give a scriptural example, like a, That's a text what I mean. that is yeah. often abused. Great. 
Yeah. So the, the best one that I can think of, John, and we've mentioned this before, but many people may not have heard us talk about it before, is the rich young ruler, the rich young man, mm-hmm. where this, this man comes to Jesus, he's a Jew, and he asks Jesus, you know, in, in Matthew's account, he literally says, what work must I do to inherit eternal life? In Luke's account, he, he just says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looks at him and he says, well, you keep the commandments. And then he lists That's several right. of them. And the young man says, well, I've done that. I've done that since I was a, a youth. And then Jesus responds by saying, well, one thing you still lack, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, come and follow me. And the young man goes away dejected, sorrowful. Well, what's going on there? What is going on is that this man thinks he has kept the law. And what Jesus does in saying to him, sell everything you own, give it to the poor, come follow me. He is asking this man to prove his love for God and his love for neighbor. Because the the law of God is summed up in what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus asks this young man to prove that, he can't. It crushes him. Jesus has turned up the temperature. He has dumped the full weight of the law on this young man's conscience, and this young man is undone. Now, the disciples hear this and, and, and see what's going on. And remember, in their minds, think covenant with Israel, right? God blesses people with riches and possessions and the like for their obedience to the law, because that's what God had done in his national covenant with Israel. And so they're thinking, my goodness, this man has wealth. This means he's obedient. This means that he's lived a good life. Jesus, if he can't be saved, who can be saved? And Christ (laughs) says, well, with man, it's impossible, but with God, it's possible. Well, the way that this text is often preached, John, I've heard this a bunch of times. I'm sure mm-hmm. you have too. Right. Is you need to surrender all. You need to be willing to surrender everything and then follow Christ if you're going to be saved. There's this qualifier put on saving faith. Like you've got to be willing to do what that young man was not willing to do. And that's not mm-hmm. the point. The point is you can't do this. The young man thought he'd kept the law. Jesus was like, you haven't, and I'm going to show you you haven't. And the fact that you need what's standing in front of you, you need me, right? That's the point of that passage. And so that's a that's great right. maybe illustration sort of of the, of the law gospel distinction that we're pointing to. Yeah. I would say this happens a lot in scripture where you see commands and you see instructions. And um, I would even say there are many times when Jesus is asked, what must I do to be saved or, or sinners come to him? Certainly. And he doesn't give them gospel. Gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ saves sinners by his work alone. When Jesus says, you must do this work, that's not mm-hmm. good news. That's bad no. news, right? To, to, to leave father and mother and forsake all and father me is not good news. That's bad news because mm-hmm. no one can do that. N- not on their own, not fully, not completely. It always requires God's power to accomplish it. So we would say we have to be a, we have to be careful. I would say also where you would see a collapsing of the law and the gospel is when we see obedience passages. When Absolutely. we see when we are called to obey, which we're this is going to lead into our next section on the third uses three uses of the law. When we are called to obey, do these things as church, or even we would say the moral law that's brought over. If you don't, if you understand to do those unto salvation, you are now collapsing the law of requirement and the gospel. So those who have been saved 
Paul tells us there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. By faith, we have all the benefits of Christ. Our union with Christ, being adopted as children, we are safe. There is, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, being a part of the family of God, there are ways in which we are to conduct ourselves. And we are told that these things are important. And, and if we don't conduct ourselves in these ways, that the church has a structure called church discipline. We were to go in and lovingly care for each other and bring each other back under this loving kindness that God has. But you can never look at obedience being either the result of or the requirement of your salvation. You have just collapsed yeah. good news and law. The law and the good news of the gospel have always have to be separate. Otherwise, Salvation is by works in some form, sure. whether it's keeping salvation or earning salvation. Yeah, John, I, I want to use a term really quickly that I hope will will be clarifying for people. There are there are people who mean well; their, their intentions are good. We would never impugn their motivations. Who we would call biblicists, who want to mm-hmm. take the Bible seriously on its own terms, but often what they end up doing is introducing a mystery and attention into Scripture where it does not exist. So a, a biblicist would take things that are clearly taught in the Bible and somewhat pit them against each other. For example, on the one hand, we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. But on the other hand, we will go to hell if we do these certain things. So for the biblicist, it's like, well, the mystery is how both of these things could be true. And we would say, well, actually, there, there's not a mystery there. What has happened is you have collapsed categories and you have confused categories of law and gospel. And so that, that law-gospel distinction that we've been talking about can help us understand that very thing, how we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, and yet the, the writers in the New Testament will say the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. This has everything to do with that distinction between the law and the gospel, but also with respect to the, the three uses of the law and how they have been historically defined. All of that can bring a lot of clarity and a lot of relief uh, for people and a greater understanding of what of what's being talked about in Scripture. So we plan over in the members podcast to define the three uses of the law as they have been historically understood, and we plan to talk about our fifth point of Reformed theology, which is an ordinary means of grace understanding of the Christian life and even of the way of growth and sanctification in the Christian life. If you are unfamiliar with Theocast and with the members podcast, you don't even know what I'm talking about. You can find out more information about our membership and the podcast that is a piece of that at our website, theocast.org. And just by way of uh, an announcement, we plan to offer the members podcast today for free so that you can continue to track with us as we have defined these five points of Reformed theology. John and I are making our way to the members podcast, and we will talk with you over there. Thank you.